Anyone, please take a seat. <coughs> um, just want to say a quick thanks. I've very much had a lovely time in this uh, congregation, and all the, I felt very loved and served all these past few years. Maybe you can tell this is scripted. Um, <coughs> also very grateful that Paul's decided to keep me busy on my last Sunday here. Um, so tonight we're going to be looking at questions 27 and 28 in the Heidelberg Catechism, but first we're going to have a reading from Romans 8 on page 944 on the Bibles that you hopefully got on the way in. Uh, Romans 8, starting at verse 26. Um, <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're also going to read the catechism uh, together. Uh, you'll find this on the, the sheets that are inside your Bible. Uh, I made a slight change to the phrasing of the PowerPoint, which I didn't realize uh, doesn't match the sheets. So we'll go from the, the sheets rather than what's on the screen. Um, and I'll, I'll read the question, and then all together we can say the answer. So question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? And together... God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And question 28, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence 
in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. There we go. So these two questions in the Hadeberg Catechism give us a helpful definition and a helpful application of the doctrine of God's providence. It tells us exactly what we mean when we talk about God's providence, and it shows us exactly how knowing about God's providence helps us in our lives. During times of great suffering, one of the first questions that we ask or other people might ask us is, where is your God? When terrible things are happening to us or in the world at large, is it because God is asleep at the wheel? I saw one Christian blogger treating God's ordering of the world as if it's reactive, that God just reacts to things. They said that God is like a chess player. He knows the perfect move to make in response to things that go wrong. His plan is changeable. If plan A doesn't work, God always has plan B. If that doesn't work, he's always got plan C. In other words, it's not so much that God is in charge of the world, but he's just doing his best to sort it out when things go wrong. But the Bible teaches us that God has only ever had one plan and that he's completely in control and everything happens according to his plan. And this catechism shows us that this is not something for us to be ashamed of in front of others. Some people might say something like, Where is, like how can your God or how can you believe in a God that allows these things to happen? But we don't need to be ashamed that God has one plan. Instead, it's something for us to find great comfort as God's people in and great strength to bear with things. On the other hand, God's providence is perhaps one of the things that we forget very quickly when things are going well. Sometimes we can forget to acknowledge and thank God when things are going well. And at worst, we can become a bit arrogant, thinking we've made ourselves prosper rather than everything being a gift from God. The Catechism therefore summarizes what the Bible teaches us about God's power in the world, his purposes in the things that happen, and the patience, thankfulness, and confidence available to us as God's people through knowing about God's providence. Firstly, it tells us about God's almighty power. That's my first heading tonight. God is almighty, and this question shows that he exerts his power in the world by upholding it and by ruling it. When the Catechism talks about God upholding all things, it means that there is nothing in the world that can live and exist and thrive in and of itself. All life and all things are graciously given their ability to live from God. We find this teaching in the Bible. If you listen to Psalm 145, verse 15 and 16, speaking to the Lord, David says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of everything. In this way, there's, there's a big distinction between God, the creator, and all the creation. All the creation lives a dependent existence. Everything depends on something else to live and ultimately depends on God. But God doesn't live a dependent existence. He depends on nothing. He lives 
in and of himself. He needs nothing to support his life. A couple of weeks ago, I was part of a Q&A at one of the free church kids camps, and one of them asked, where did God come from? And I explained to them that God didn't come from anywhere. He was always just there. But there's a difficulty in explaining that because there's no parallel in our world of something that's always just been there apart from God. There's no analogy in our own experience of things. Everything else has come from somewhere. Everything else depends on, its, on something else for life. We need food and drink. Our food and drink needs the fridge. We need shelter. Our shelter, our houses need maintenance to keep going. But God needs nothing. If you ever need a reminder of how powerful God is, just remember that he maintains himself without assistance. He needs nothing. That means that our God is very worthy to be praised and trusted. There is nothing else in the world that is like God in that way. There's nothing else that is completely independent. And he can be trusted because his almighty power means that he's completely able to supply all of our needs. When we pray for things, we can pray for, with complete assurance that God is uniquely able to provide those things for us. God also upholds and sustains all of creation. God's power is involved in the world constantly. It's not like a mechanical object, like God has started in the beginning and it's just been ticking away itself ever since. God is continually upholding all things. Nothing can live apart from his provision. Remember the verse from Psalm 45 I just read that the eyes of all look to you and you give them food in due season. A great example of this is is our own bodies. We don't consciously make our hearts beat. If you do that, please talk to me at the end. We don't consciously digest our food. But the best we can do is treat our bodies carefully and take care of them. But ultimately, every heartbeat comes from God. Every next breath comes from God. It's his continual provision that keeps us going second by second and minute by minute. Because God is so mighty and powerful and truly free of any dependence, it means he's fully capable of looking after us. And in terms of God's care for us, it's helpful to note that there's not different, there's no, there aren't different grades of Christians where God is particularly interested in the lives of some but not others, and others just sort of muddle through. Because of God's great might and power and independence, he's able to take care of each of us individually even though he's got millions and billions of people to look after. He cares for each one. One writer says that God cares for each of his people as if there's no one else to care for. You don't need to worry about God's care of you being diluted by all the other things that he does in the world. God is so powerful that he's able to care for and love each of us as intensely as if we're his only child. Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from God's oversight. And so how much more will he uphold and watch his own children? So providence means that God upholds all things by his power. And providence also means that God rules 
everything by his power. The answer to question 27 says that God rules heaven and earth and all creatures as well as upholding them. Listen to Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In that verse, Paul is talking about how God redeeming his people has always been his plan. But notice how he describes God. He says God is him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Both this verse in Ephesians and this part of the Catechism teach that God rules all things and works them out to fulfill his purposes. Nothing happens which is outside of God's divine plan. And all things ultimately will serve his purpose. The Catechism says that everything in our lives, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. Nothing in our lives happens by chance. There's never a time when God has lost control and all things come to us by his fatherly hand. Now that's not to say that God is quite the same relationship with everything that happens. God loves the good, God loves life, but he hates sin and evil. He plans to remove suffering and death from the world, but he will keep joy and peace and love. It's true that God rules over everything, but he has a different relationship with evil than the one he has with good. James 1.17 says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. All the good in the world can find its ultimate origin in God. God is all good. James says, every good and perfect gift is from above. But it is not the same with evil. God rules over it and it has its place in his purposes, but God is not the author of evil. God doesn't sin. God doesn't do evil, and he cannot go against his nature. You might remember that verse in 1 John that says, God is light, and there's no darkness in him. So that means that we can trace all good back to God, but ultimately we can't trace all evil back to him. If we follow evil's trail, as it were, it doesn't take us back to God. If evil could talk, it might say something like, I don't come from God, but I can only do what he will permit me in accordance with his purposes. So God rules over all things, good and evil, and he works all things according to his purpose. But while he is the author of good, he's not the author of evil. In our lives, that means we can have great assurance that God never loses control. There's not one rogue molecule in the world that is outside of God's sovereign purposes. There's not one second of time where he's not ruling. And when we, when we suffer, it's not a sign that we've lost God's love or that he's being vindictive or capricious against us. God doesn't sin. All things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. One helpful thing to remember might be to remember Jesus who, who does God love more than Jesus? And yet Jesus, as we sang this morning, is the man of sorrows. He is acquainted 
with grief. Suffering doesn't mean that God has it in for us because God isn't capricious or doesn't sin. But also, when terrible things happen to us, it's not that the plan has gone wrong either. There is one plan. There always has been and always will be. The spark of evil or the seed that has grown and borne the fruit of those terrible things does not come from God, but he remains king over it and he rules it and works it to the counsel of his will. And this is a truth that we don't need to be ashamed of. When people ask us, where is your God in all this? Or how can you believe in a God who allows this to happen? We don't need to say, I don't know. God is there. God has his purpose. We might not know what his purpose is, but we know that he rules and that his purpose is good. If God wasn't in control and things didn't happen according to his will, we'd have no assurance that things would turn out for the good that he intends. We'd have no assurance that nothing can separate us from his love, as we read in Romans. I heard of one vicar responding to a tragedy saying, God must have been asleep at the wheel, but that's not really a comfort. And it's not even what the Bible says. The Catechism says elsewhere, God will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. We would have no assurance that God could do that if he wasn't entirely in control. The other thing that assures us that all things will work for our ultimate good is that God is a good God and a good father, and he has a good fatherly purpose for everything that happens. That's the second point tonight, God's fatherly purpose. God being the father of his people comes up in both of the answers to these questions. Everything comes to us by his fatherly hand, and we can have full confidence in question 28 in our faithful God and father. It's there to give us assurance. God does not mistreat his children. Nothing can separate us from his love. Everything, good or bad, that comes to us by his hand is for his good and fatherly purpose. And it's true that not everything about God's purpose is known to us. He doesn't tell us everything, but he does tell us enough. All things work to the good of God's people. There's a key verse in Romans 8 for this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This verse tells us that all things that come to us by God's hand, rain or drought, sickness or health, poverty or prosperity, come to us for our good. And that's, it's important that it's not, not to say that everything we experience is good, but by God's grace, God works them all together for the purpose of our good. And Paul makes very clear what he means by our good in these verses. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, our, our salvation is, is a fixed reality. We definitely have it. It's a historical event that we see in Jesus. But it is also an ongoing experience, an experience of being conformed more and more every day to the image of Christ to look more like Jesus. 
God, in his providence, works through all things to make his people every day, bit by bit, hour by hour, more like Jesus. If we're finding it difficult to struggle against our sin, or we're discouraged by how little we look like Jesus as Christians, just remember that God is powerfully working through all things to conform you to Christ's image. Long before you even existed, God knew and planned to make you like Jesus. Because of his almighty power, he's able to carry out that plan. And because he loves you, he's willing to carry out that plan. One of the things we can be most sure of as God's people is that he will complete the good work he began in us of making us look like Jesus. All things will work to make us look like Jesus. This can give us a, <clears throat> sorry, this can give us a, a unique assurance as Christians that our suffering will be turned to our good. Listen to Romans 5, 3 to 5. Uh, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is able to rejoice here that even the sufferings in our lives produce the fruit of endurance, the fruit of character, the fruit of hope, because God is at work through the Holy Spirit within us to make us more like Jesus. You might notice that the whole Trinity is at, is at play here. The Father is the one who plans all things to happen according to the counsel of his will. The Holy Spirit powerfully works inside us to make us more like the Son, Jesus. The whole of God's power is behind that purpose. <clears throat> and we're not always granted knowledge of what exactly God is working in our hearts for each particular thing that we suffer. Sometimes we can look back on things with a, a new perspective and see how we've grown, but not always. It's not always the case. We're given a promise to cling to rather than a detailed explanation. The promise that he is doing something. We can cling to the promise that there is some way in which we're being made like Jesus in everything we face, good or bad. Poverty or prosperity, rain or drought, sickness or health, fruitful or lean years. There is some way in which God is making us more like Jesus. So we know then about God's might and God's purpose. And the catechism includes an application of how this knowledge helps us. That's the final point. The three implications, patience, thankfulness, and confidence. It lists patience in adversity, thankfulness in prosperity, and a good confidence that nothing will separate us from God's love. And I think it's important to note that these aren't always separate. We can have times of prosperity and adversity happening at the same time. In some areas of life, we might have great prosperity, great good things happening, and in others, at the same time, we might have great adversity. But knowing God's providence helps us to be Christ-like in both of those areas. Firstly, knowing God's providence teaches us patience in adversity. I thought I'd start here talking about what patience 
is not. Patience isn't quite the same as stoicism. The Bible doesn't tell us to deal with everything with a stiff, a stiff upper lip or a steely brave face. Patience isn't so much how long you can go without weeping or how much you can deal with it without needing to talk to someone. God doesn't ask us to bottle it up. What we are asked to do, though, is when undergoing trials to remain hopeful and not to sin. Patience and adversity, then, is this, not losing the hope we have in Christ because of our circumstances. The patient sufferer clings to Jesus rather than running away. Patience and adversity means not recoursing to sin as a way of dealing with our troubles. We might remember the book of Job. In chapter 1, all of Job's life is stripped away. His family die. His prosperity, oh, sorry, his property is destroyed. His health is taken away from him. But chapter 1, verse 22 has this amazing statement. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job didn't recourse to sin to deal with his suffering, and he didn't lose hope in his faithful God. So much so, he didn't charge God with any wrong. When we suffer, it can be an opportunity for sin to gain territory in our hearts. But we, we can't look to sin for comfort. This looks different for different people. Sometimes we can comfort ourselves by indulging in bad habits, for example. Perhaps drinking when we know it's not wise for us to do so or looking at images online that we know we shouldn't. Or perhaps we take it out on our family and friends by being grumpy or snappy. Or perhaps we seek revenge on the people that hurt us. But sin's not an available recourse for us. As God's people, instead we look to Christ for our comfort. I wanted to just point out a few things about Jesus that remind us to look to him for comfort as we bear suffering. Firstly, Jesus is our guarantee that our suffering will be turned to our good. He purchased us through his death on the cross. We belong to him, and in his sovereignty over all things, he will not neglect to turn all things for our good and to cause us to bear fruit. He will, through the Holy Spirit, assist us and comfort us. These things are all guaranteed for us through Jesus on the cross. Secondly, Jesus sympathizes with us when we feel weak. He knows what it is like to be a human. He knows what it is like to experience God's providence even when it is painful. In Acts 2, Peter says, Jesus was delivered up to be killed by lawless men according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God his Father. So we're not alone or misunderstood when we similarly suffer according to God's definite plan. Jesus sees and knows. And thirdly, Jesus is our example for suffering. He bore unjust suffering without sinning. We know from Hebrews that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. He patiently said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is our ultimate example of patience in suffering. And by his power, it will make it, he'll make it possible for us to bear our suffering righteously. 
since we're in Christ Jesus, our souls nourished by a spiritual life, in our adversity, He will fuel our patience, and in our prosperity, He'll make us thankful. If patience is the appropriate response to hardship, thankfulness is the appropriate response to good times. I mentioned earlier that God's providence means that every good thing in our lives comes from Him. Not just the miraculous, but also the ordinary. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from, father, from, the, from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every little piece of provision, every little bit of goodness in our lives is from God. If we have socks on our feet or a coat on our back, it is from God. If we have a house and a bed, it is from God. If we have a lovely gift from a friend or if we have a friend at all, it is from God. If we went out to a gig or a musical or a film and enjoyed it, it's a gift from God. Many of us have a practice of saying thanks before we eat our dinners, but listen to what G.K. Chesterton says. You say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink to write my books. His habit was to give thanks for everything good that God gave him. God doesn't only deserve our thanks when he works wonders, but he is also responsible for everything good in our lives, even if it's ordinary. It could be easy for us to become a bit puffed up when we prosper, thinking things like, I deserve this, or I've, I've worked hard for this. But providence teaches us not to be puffed up, but to offer thanks to God. Even if we are people who've worked very hard to get where we are, it's only because of God's providence that we've been able to work hard. It's only because of God's providence that we've had the desire to work hard. It's only because of his providence that that hard work has borne fruit. There's God to thank at every step of the way. So it's far more appropriate for us to give thanks to God who provides all things for us than it is for us to get puffed up. The final implication is that we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. Remember Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible teaches us that God is in charge on the small scale, even to the hairs of our heads, and also on the cosmic scale, where he's the Lord of history. It teaches us that he is in charge during rain and drought, fruitful, busy times, and times where nothing good is coming up. He's in charge of food and drink, sickness and health, wealth and poverty. And it teaches us that he is faithful to his people and that he loves us and that nothing can separate us from his love because of his, because of his great might. We will experience his love through his provision for us in life because God takes special care of his people so that not one hair of their head will drop apart from his will. We will experience his love when we suffer, when he helps us to bear it and when he turns it to our good. In all situations, we will not be separated 
from his love, but in his love, all things will be worked out for the good of his people. God gives us so much assurance of his faithful love towards us that we can live with great patience, knowing that he will turn all things for our good to make us more like Jesus. We can live with great thankfulness, knowing that there is someone to thank for all the good things we have other than ourselves. And we can live with great confidence knowing that God upholds and rules all things so that nothing comes to us by chance but by his fatherly hand for his fatherly purpose and in his fatherly love. Love. Um, Let's finish with a prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, you are in control. We thank you that you uphold and rule all things. We thank you that uh, you are good and you have a good purpose for everything that happens. We thank you that through Jesus we can have complete assurance that all things will turn for our good to make us more like him. We thank you that uh, you've given us the Holy Spirit to work powerfully in us and that you work powerfully in the world so that all things come to us not by chance but by your Father's hand. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to finish off with uh, when I fear my faithful.